y'all. It's mm -hmm. Tuesday, and we're making our way through this garbage fire of a news cycle so that you don't have to. Mm, well, at least we're trying to make it through it. First up on the show today, we're talking about the latest with the squad and Trump, and then Alex is sitting down with Gina Torres, which is very exciting. But first, like a supermodel cleans down a plane, we're going to clean off our computers. There you go. We'll see you on the timeline. See y'all there. Can I get two of those? I need double. There's only one left. It sucks for you. Oh, rude. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. So Alex, how clean is that computer of yours? I saw how many wipes you just had access to, and it was just tremendous. Really. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> my wipe was stolen. However, I am pleased to report that my computer wasn't very dirty to begin with. Uh, so, not there dirty you have it. to begin with. Well, speaking of dirt, here's a tweet <laughs> from Kiki. Plain Seat Sanitation 101, Avec Naomi Campbell, with a video of Naomi herself wiping down a plain seat. And here's a counterpoint from Vic Sanusi. This is exactly why Naomi Campbell has that certain cleaning routine on the plane. What? And there mm. you have it. You people are disgusting. Ugh, to which I say, if you are able to use your arms, you should not be doing this with your feet. I just am overwhelmed by the audacity <laughs> of this and also, the um, skill I see in those those little yeah. little piggies, I guess you would not say, this, not this individual. Is not, first this time. is not the first time. This yeah. is, you do this a lot. You know, the Disgusting. thing that gets me is just when people do things in public spaces that is inconsiderate mm -hmm. of the next person who is gonna have to go and put their fingers on that screen. So, you know. Please do not do this. You know, I woke up last night, or no, last night I was always going to bed. This was going viral. It's not going viral today. And the only good out of this is that we know that Naomi Campbell herself is a clean freak. There you have it. I love it. Again, if you can do this with your arms, you know, please do. Yes, please, fingers please, please work. Do. Yep. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What's the grossest thing you've seen on a plane? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Well, moving along, here's a tweet from the Washington Post, Rachel Bade. This is the agenda of white nationalists. The squad condemns Trump's racist remarks and offers a more inclusive vision in a rare press conference hitting back at the president. Mm. To discuss the story, let's go live from the district with BuzzFeed News reporter, uh, BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter, Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, I feel like I haven't seen you in so long. No, it has been too it's long, been, it has. You have been deeply missed, Paul, and we're so happy to have you back. I, I know. I, I was away for a couple weeks in the Pacific Northwest, which was beautiful, but uh, I got back in time for uh, this. Yes. yes. And we need you more now than ever for this. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Well, <laughs> well, let's just dive right on in. What else did the group say at the press conference yesterday? So, uh, I mean, they had a multifaceted hit against the president, as you said. Uh, they're basically saying he's pursuing the agenda of white nationalism, saying that only weak leaders seek to accuse their enemies of disloyalty because of a difference of ideas. Really, the core message was that it is, in fact, Trump who is betraying the ideals of what it means to be an American and the ideals of America, in particular with his border policies, and accuse him of essentially trying to use these attacks on them as a distraction and a way to divide the country. How have Republicans responded uh, to the tweets and subsequently all of this? I would, I would put them into three categories. There were a small group of uh, people like Mitt Romney and uh, Susan Murkowski who 
came out and denounced pretty quickly the president's comments, saying that they were wrong and unacceptable, albeit none, no one actually accused the president of uh, uttering racist comments. And then there was, a little bit farther down the line, you had people like Susan Collins and um, Lindsey Graham, who kind of acted as if, well, the president's comments were wrong, but he was almost baited into it. I mean, Lindsey came out with this uh, long statement about how, yes, it's all about the Democrats and they're anti-Semitic and they've, they're the horrible ones. However, the president needs to rise above the fray and can't get sucked into these personal uh, battles. And then you had uh, other Republicans who uh, not only back the president, but fully doubled down with uh, accusing uh, this group of Democratic representatives of being essentially anti-Semitic and anti-American. So there was, and I, I got to say that the spectrum of Republicans who did not criticize the president was bigger than those that did. Mm. So, Paul, even after this moment, what outstanding issues are there between Nancy Pelosi and these freshman members of Congress? Yeah, they are coming off of a pretty divisive debate. This was in particular over the uh, last funding package that uh, funded uh, border Well, it, it funded uh, a lot of things on the border, including uh, the uh, handling of asylum seekers. And, of course, the squad, as we're now calling them, and among others, were really pushing for more protections, a more aggressive bill, more aggressively democratic bill. And uh, it's not that... Nancy Pelosi disagreed with the substance of what they were saying, but Nancy Pelosi essentially went the other way and said, look, this is the best deal we're going to get with Republicans right now. We're cutting this one and we're voting for it because it's, it's as good as we're going to get. And that became very bitter. I mean, we saw uh, on both sides shots being fired, both between Pelosi and the actual representatives and uh, staffers on and off the record. And really for a while there, that was a story about the feud between the leadership and this wing of the Democratic Party. And kind of the irony of, of Trump's statement is it completely unified Democrats. I mean, this took what was so, uh, an internal uh, squabble, an internal fight, and made it something that, uh, an issue that they could all stand together on and denounce the president. So he's really brought them together. Now, these underlying disagreements agreements about policy are going to continue, and you can bet that uh, it won't be long before there is another chance, that there's another opportunity where Nancy Pelosi being very much a pragmatist is going to be on a totally different, bad terms uh, with AOC and the crew. Mm, bad terms with AOC. Well, here's a tweet from the New York Times. The Trump administration announced a new rule on Monday that would deny protections to migrants who failed to apply for asylum in the first country they passed through on their way to the United States border. Mm -hmm. Paul, what exactly are the new implications of this rule? So the Trump administration has long been very frustrated by the amount of asylum seekers, refugee seekers who are coming into the country. But, I mean, the United States is a first world country that has signed on to international agreements. And, I mean, part of being one of the leading countries in the world is you have agreed that when people are coming from places where their lives are under threat, you can't just turn them away and send them back to be potentially murdered. You have to, they have a chance to come in, to plead their case, you have to give them a fair hearing, and then you can make an assessment on what to do. Now, that is the system that is currently overloaded right now, and the Trump administration has repeatedly tried to find ways to sort of narrow down eligibility. Uh, this, if enacted, would be a just a massive, massive step. I, I really can't stress enough. This would be a fundamental change in how the United States handles asylum seekers. Essentially what they would say is unilaterally, they would declare that, well, if you are from 
a, a third country, so let's say you're from a Central American country and you're coming through the Mexican-U.S. border, uh, you have no right to declare asylum here. We are going to turn you away because you can always try to uh, declare asylum in Mexico instead. And this is something that can be done, actually, but it is done through bilateral agreements. So, for example, Canada and the U.S. have what's called a safe third country agreement, where this actually does work because the two countries have negotiated terms. But now this is the United States just uh, completely unilaterally declaring this. And if enacted, it would allow them to turn away, essentially, I mean, probably a large majority of the asylum seekers who are coming to America. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned is that for these asylum seekers, they're trying to come here so that they can be safe, so that they're not turned away and, uh, you know, sent home to uh, potentially violent situations. Um, what will happen to this rule? Will it be challenged in court? Immediately. It'll immediately be challenged in court. And, I mean, we're kind of in... I'm not, I'm not aware of any country seeking to do this before, so I don't, I don't know how this would play out in terms of holding America to its international obligations. Uh, but it, the ACLU, for example, right off the bat said that this was going to be challenged, and I suspect this would be a long court battle that, as, as we are starting to see with the Trump administration, some of these court battles are going to start extending through the life of Trump's first term. So maybe this will never, in the end, come to fruition one way or the other. But absolutely, this is going to be a major legal fight, because what we are talking about here is completely changing the very nature of the United States asylum system. Mm. And Paul, since this is such a grave change, potentially, is there any chance that the courts will rule in favor of the administration? It's certainly possible. I mean, that, you know, it, we're, because we haven't even seen uh, legal arguments, let alone any kind of lower court decisions, uh, it, I mean, it's just far too soon to say. Uh, we've seen the Trump administration now uh, push legally uh, some arguments that did not seem on their face to have much of a chance of succeeding. In particular, I'm thinking about the lawsuit to overturn Obamacare, which for various reasons, most legal scholars agree is absurd. And yet here we have it advancing steadily through a Republican-controlled court system. So I absolutely could never sit here and tell you that there's not a chance that this would, that this would pass, or that the courts would allow this. All right, well, we will leave it there. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great talking with you. Always <laughs> fun. Hopefully something cheerier on Thursday. For real, for real. We will pray on that one, Paul. Okay, well, here's a tweet from NBC News reporter Brandy Zadrozny. Looked into a private Facebook group of 18,000 Amazon workers to see how the folks at fulfillment centers are bracing for Prime Day, a holiday where employees work mandatory overtime, 12-plus hours a day, for a week-plus of repetitive, grueling physical labor. And she continued... They get regular overtime, no holiday pay, but they get T-shirts and, as one worker told me, a granola bar. A granola bar. Okay. Well, joining us today is Brandy, who broke this story. Good morning, Brandy. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, for being here. So let's just dive right on in. Who are these 18,000 people within the Amazon Facebook group you were exploring? Yeah, so um, they are 18,000 current, former uh, Amazon Fulfillment Center employees. That's what Amazon calls a warehouse. <laughs> but in, in that sort of corporate doublespeak, it's a fulfillment center. Um, and they just sort of gather to post memes and um, just 
talk about their their shared you know successes at work. They share their pins that they've gotten. They post selfies in their vests. They uh, a lot of them use it to actually connect with people they work with at the same factory or at the same warehouse. So it's just sort of a fun group. And every once in a while, when there are periods of great stress, you'll see uh, the posts get a little darker. And that's what was really happening around Prime Day is that you know people were posting memes of a sinking ship with the the caption, we're all in the same boat. And they were posting, you know, uh, just really hilarious memes of people exhausted and, you know, in some cases dying, peeing in bottles. And it's, it's funny uh, until you realize that there are, you know, thousands of workers fulfilling the orders for your Instapot that are going through these grueling conditions. And they're being told to have mandatory corporate fun um, with a granola bar, or maybe they'll get a slice of pizza. Um, each of the warehouses have themed days for prime days, which are two this year. So some had, you know, like um, Game of Thrones theme and then and some had a Hawaiian theme. So all of these workers who are doing grueling, grueling tasks for, you know, 12 hours a day during prime week um, are being also told to rah-rah Amazon. Um, so they're posting funny memes about that too. Oh yeah, feel free to work for a gazillion hours, have a little bit of a granola bar, uh, but you get to dress up like Game of Thrones. I don't know. Um, How is uh, this year's Prime Day different than previous ones? Well, it's uh, it's different for them because they make $15 an hour now, right? Bezos has given um, all his employees, his uh, fulfillment center workers, uh, $15 an hour, which is far above the competition, what the competition offers. But they've also increased the demand on workers. So not only have we now got one day prime shipping, which is sort of insane if you think about, you can go online, order something and get it to your door the same day or within one day. And that, that... that doesn't happen magically, right? That happens on the backs of these workers. So that's that. there's that. And then there's also Prime Day is not just one day, but it's two full days now. And that those two days, again, don't magically happen, right? There's a buildup for that. There's preparation for that. There's the actual two days. And then there's all the time after that people are still fulfilling orders. They're taking back orders. They're just getting things in order at the is huge, you know, warehouses. So people have told me that they're, um, you know, going to work for 12 hours a day, rushing home, sleeping six hours, and then coming back to work another 12 hours, having this mandatory fun on top of that. Um, and it's, it's really, it's grueling, grueling work. Oh, it sounds incredibly grueling. And yesterday, workers at a Minnesota fulfillment center uh, demonstrated by protesting uh, Prime Day. Can you tell us about that event and what they were hoping to gain from that protest? Yeah, so the protesters there were looking for basically better working conditions. Um, so they have asked for more ergonomic setups where they do uh, their jobs. You know, one woman at the Minnesota plant who was striking, Meg Brady, told me that, you know, she she had this quota, right? And all Amazon uh, warehouse workers have this quota. And so hers was, you know, 600 pieces. So she would do 600 pieces of movements like this. And that's, that's again, it... it it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it takes a lot of strain. So she was asking for a more ergonomic setup. She had actually hurt herself on the job. So she's um, on disability right now. So she's not actually in the warehouse. But other people were asking for, there's a big refugee community in that area. So they were asking for um, space and time to pray, things like that. Um, what Amazon has said in, in regards to the 
protest is that um, it's only a few employees and it's really, they say it's uh, organized by an outside, you know, labor organization, people that want to come in and give Amazon a bad name, ruin their prime day. Um, and yeah, so that, that's their, that's their point of view. Um, the workers say not so. And it's important to note that in this private Facebook group, people feel a lot more free to talk about what's really going on. You know, there is some, some sort of anonymity to a private Facebook group. And when you feel like you're talking with your peers, um, people have said in this group that they feel pressure not to join that protest. So Amazon touts the small numbers in the protest as some sort of significance and saying that like, see, people don't really mind. Uh, people love Amazon. People inside, you know, our workers love us. And that's true to some extent, but it's also true that they feel a lot of pressure not to be involved in these protests. And Amazon has come out um, pretty strongly against any unionization efforts within the factories too. Mm. Well, Brandy, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through this uh, story. Appreciate it, y'all. Thanks. Nothing says you're going to have a terrible time like putting the word mandatory in front of the word fun. And then after saying that, giving someone a granola bar. Also that. Well, we've got a great show for you today. Later on, Alex and I will be sitting down with Winnie Bionima, the head of Oxfam. But up next, comedian Alice Wetterland is joining me for some fire tweets. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be quite fun. It's time for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by comedian and actor Alice Wetterland, who you might know from HBO Silicon Valley. Alice is going to help me get through Fire Tweets, which I'm super, super, super excited about, because this is, I love having Alex here to do this, but whenever I have a new person, we get to like, have a big old kiki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex is <laughs> Alex great. Alex is mad. I can hear her in the back. Alice. <laughs> Alex oh, for she's Alex. she's there? She's watching. watching. <laughs> oh, my God. You're, you're, this is you're auditioning brutal. for her new role. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to really be, regret this, okay? <laughs> Shall we try Give this a go? <laughs> this, give this, it a go. This audition now for Let's the new Alex, who's Alex. <clears throat> All right. So we have our first tweet from Relayer, who says... <laughs> I hate when you delete someone's number and your iPhone comes back with maybe. Maybe nothing, bitch. So are you familiar with what they're talking about here? Yeah, I am. It doesn't say maybe. Uh, it says maybe the person's name. It doesn't yes. say just maybe. Well, someone else. <laughs> you would come up as maybe Alice Wetterland. And yeah, I'd yeah. be like, I deleted her number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe absolutely not. I, I guess it has happened to me. I like it. I appreciate it, though, because I never save anyone's number in the first place. Oh. So I wish it would just be like, hey, maybe save a number, bitch. Like, you might want to do a little bit of <laughs> You may care about this person. Return an email one time in your life is mm. another okay. prompt. Okay, you want an iPhone to really help you become a better person. I would like, well... Hasn't happened yeah. yet. <laughs> All right, so now it's your turn. You want to hit the button. Okay. You read from over here. Okay. Ready? I get to hit. Go for it. Boom. Ah! <laughs> okay. Wendy, you girl, you tweeted, I bought my mom a book on how to make tiny hats for cats yesterday, and she just texted me this picture. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that guy. It's great. So he I just was... got a small hat on. <laughs> <laughs> An itty bitty person hat. Yes. So I was scrolling through your Instagram and I noticed that you post pictures of your cat. It's all yeah. It's a thing. It's, it's what do you, do. What do you love is. most about your cat? <laughs> Headless cat person. I mean, like it's great, right? He's, it's so cute. It's, and I'm not even a cat person. I thought this was adorable. This is the thing. <laughs> He's just so happy to be alive. Everybody's always like, your cats are like dogs, and they're just good cats. <laughs> Which means that they cuddle and they love you. They're the cats very friendly. Mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always come up to people when they come to my house for the first time. And they're like, <laughs> and I'm like, they're never like this with anyone. You know, just to make people feel good. But it's not oh, true. They're just good cats. Good cats. They know how to sit. 
Shake. Yeah. Wow, dog cats. Cats Alice are trainable. Cats. Hmm. All right, so we have a tweet here from Pat Oswalt, <laughs> who writes, just farted at the gym and stopped to make sure everyone around me had headphones on. Hashtag they did. Hashtag dignity still intact. So you go to the gym, I noticed, on your, uh, your Instagram, yeah, too. I'm very I ripped and jacked. Very creepy. I was looking at your Instagram. Have you done anything as embarrassing as Patton? Um, yeah, I farted at the gym. You farted? So, like, okay. Like, in your clean and jerk, do you fart? Uh, no, not during. Like, all my energy is focused on Core. Keeping, it, keeping it in mm -hmm. so when you're lifting, so the farts stay in, too, and the farts help. They like it's, propel the... Yeah, yes. you breathe it and everything. But I farted at the gym before, and headphones would not help uh, wow. in that instance. It's okay, not... Cool. I'm the silent but deadly farter, so, like, it's... For me, it's not about sound. It's like, I gotta get away from the area as soon as possible. <laughs> Plants start dying. I fart near somebody who looks like they're a farter, and then I walk away, you know, because it's like... I'm not even going to ask you what a farter like, looks like, because yeah. we have your final treat of the day, which maybe <laughs> has a fart joke in it. Ooh. So we're going to do this together. So Are you ready to hit the button? Yeah. All right. Three, two, one. That's me. That's me. Yep. <laughs> two, what are you two right? I know my silence on this Scarlett Johansson thing is frustrating, but my relationship comes first at this time. Long ago, she hit on my boyfriend, and I need to prioritize throwing this in his face. Thank you for understanding and respecting my privacy. <laughs> so, Kim, what is the story behind this, this tweet? Because we were talking about ScarJo yesterday, and yeah. it just felt too important to bring up today. It, it was so—it's a complete truth. Like, I was—I saw what happened in the news. Mm -hmm. I had so much to say about it as a white woman in Hollywood with a fantastic mm -hmm. ass. Like, I really have a lot of the same— things as her and a lot of the same privileges. And I'm like, why is it so hard for you to get this right? And then I was like, you know what? Actually, the most important thing that I do in mm -hmm. this moment is that I take this news and I share it with my boyfriend because he's always like, one time she asked me out, you know, and like, <laughs> I could have, you know? And I'm like, if you could have, then why didn't you? What? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, good. give it a little try. Exactly. Hmm. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was a fun little way to it's jump into it. a real into story from my real life. Your real life. Peel back the curtain. Well, speaking of your real life, you are launching your first special on Amazon Prime Video next month called My Mama is a Human and So Am I. What can viewers expect from this? Um, a long title. <laughs> it's hard to hashtag. <laughs> and you can definitely see, um, I, th I think in post we were not able to fix. I'm wearing a silk shirt and it, you can see my sweat. Um, but more than anything else, uh, uh, the comedy in the special is, I've worked on it for 10 years, mm. so uh, it is very overworked, you know? <laughs> it's not off the cuff, and I think you won't find that spontaneity. No, it's great. Denver is an awesome comedy city. I had a great time. Mm. The room was filled with feminists who are laughers. You feminist know. laugh. You can laugh and love equality. Yeah, it's, a real thing. it's possible, especially if you're me. Mm, you know, and, I get them. <laughs> and what inspired the name for this special? Um, the name of the special is, it's named after my closer, my closing joke, which okay. is about the conspiracy in uh, country music. Mm. And uh, it's a lyric that I sang, a made-up lyric of a song. But did tell my mom that that was the name of the special. And she was like, are you <laughs> serious? My mama is a human, and you know, because she thinks it's yeah. about her. My mom thinks everything's about her. Well, all, a lot of mothers think that, and we will talk about that on a different show. But <laughs> you bring up the conspiracy theory in country music. Yeah. Are you following the Area 51 stuff on Twitter? Because it's everywhere. What is going on? You I haven't know, heard? You need to regale me. I'm okay. so sorry. Quick breakdown. There's a Facebook group that now probably has half a million people saying that they are going to rush into Area 51 <laughs> to free aliens, and they're going to do it in a Naruto-style run. Are you familiar? Where you like put your hands down and you okay. start running. Okay, never mind. Wait, how many people? A half a million people. Ooh, okay. Yeah. That's great. So like, do you think you could maybe go free 
um, another group of people <laughs> from <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> a situation that might also be happening if you have a million people strong. Uh, <clears throat> there's other stuff yeah, to think about. Yeah, a few about. other yeah. things, people that need freedom. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Alice, thank you so oh, much for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And playing around with fart jokes. You know, it's always a fun Tuesday when we it talk is. about farting. It is. Yeah, and I'm going to walk away really quickly because something just happened. Oh, my no, God. Well, while she just, walks just, away... Uh, <laughs> well, she walks away, know that my mama is a human and so am I. Premieres on Amazon Prime Video August 23rd. More Aim to DM is up next. This is from A to Z, and guess what? We somehow did not make the list of Time's most influential people on the internet. But you know what? Some of my favorite icons did. Lil Nas X, Cardi B, and Ariana Grande all made the magazine's ranking. Mm, and other notable names who made the list include President Trump and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The list is not to be confused with the Times Annual 100 Most Influential, which dropped earlier this year. So, this so, list, brand so. new, didn't know it was coming till we were alerted about it. But I, I like it. You know, yeah. she's a cute list. She's 25 people. We've had some of these people on the show. We, we know some of them through the internet. They do have impact, I will say that. Yes. So we can talk through the mix. We have, of course, some of those musicians. BTS, the K-pop band, was also Constantly on this list. And I have to say, every single morning when I'm on my way into the office, um, there is some trending hashtag mm -hmm. having to do with them. And uh, their fans produce so much content on the internet. So that one made sense. Yes. They could sneeze and go viral. There you go. Constant. You mentioned uh, some of the Twitter personalities and people that we have had on this show, like Carlos Maza, also Yashar, and Ben Shapiro, too, made this list. And Ben Shapiro has not been on the show, to my knowledge. No. Uh, but yeah. that's fine. That's yeah. fine. Which kind of gets us uh, to this other point, which is that this is a list of influential mm -hmm. people. Uh, it doesn't necessarily editorialize, like, is, are they using that influence for good? How yeah. are they using Are they using that influence for bad? How are they using that exact influence? And to that end, there are also some uh, protesters who made this list, mm -hmm. like Hong Kong's anti-extradition protesters, so you can see the power that organizing online has in real life. Yeah, what's so important about this is that, like, there's been a lot of conversations lately, driven by Speaker Nancy Pelosi, on that online power does not always equate to physical power, to political power. Um, I don't always believe that, you know, she called out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently by saying, you know, she's only one person with a few votes with the other congresswomen of color who just joined that are freshman class. Um, and she said, well, all of her power is on the internet. But to be honest, Alexandria's power is also in real life. So I think this list, while really great for now, we're going to hit a moment soon to where you cannot have power online without power offline. Too. Yes, indeed. And so on that note, let's take it to the timeline. Who do you think is missing from this list? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. And we know exactly, because that's why I remember this list so well. Beyonce Knowles Carter is not on this list. Yeah. Beehive, you're clocked in. Do your job. Because Beyonce just released the track list to Lion King. And what is everyone talking about? The track list to Lion King. So she has power. She should be on this list. Beyonce rules everything. Well, that's the thing. We were like, every time that she releases some kind of Lion King-related photo, we all flocked to her Instagram. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how when Homecoming came out, like, that was trending for days, it seemed. People were glued to their you know, their computers uh, watching the streaming show. So, I have questions. Sure, have it's questions. fine. Beyonce has so many awards she doesn't need. So. <laughs> she doesn't need this list. Yes, well, up <laughs> next, she really doesn't. Up next, Alex is sitting down with Pearson star Gina Torres. So stay tuned. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Gina Torres, star of Pearson, a new series on USA. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right, I want to get right into this series. Of course, it is a spinoff from Suits. Mm -hmm. You are reprising the role of Jessica Pearson. How was it to jump back into playing her? Easy. Easy. <laughs> Easy. Um, you know, once you 
put those high heels on. It's just <laughs> that gets body right memory. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because in the past you said you didn't have any intention of, uh, you know, playing this character again, right? So um, what made you have second thoughts about reviving this role? Yeah, sometimes characters stay with you. And uh, Jessica was certainly an example of that. Such a strong woman, written so beautifully, um, fearless and unapologetic for her power and where she'd come to in the world. Um, but we never really got mm. into her. We never really got to know the woman behind all that power. We never had an origin story, really. She, it was almost like she just, like Athena, just just rose out of the, like broke through <laughs> the head of Zeus, fully formed, you know, with her spear and sword. And, uh, and the 2016 election was happening and I was completely immersed in that and, and started thinking about all of those characters that I was watching and how all of that was unfolding to, on the world stage. And, and I started thinking about Jessica and how she would handle that because she has that skill set. She has um, the wits and the wherewithal to be able to sort of swim in those waters. Hmm. And I put the two together and USA was interested and as interested as I was in getting Jessica back and, and Aaron Korsh came on board and Dan Arkin came on board and, and here we are. And here we are. Well, yeah. uh, you mentioned we get to see these other dimensions of her, uh, not just that really powerful side, but were there particular parts of the 2016 election where you were like, I'm going to take that piece and that'll inform a part of her character, that piece, that'll inform another part? You know, it wasn't even so much the election. I mean, Yes and no. I mean, absolutely the characters in it. But the world right now is interesting and and crazy. And, you know, it's like you're seeing the best of people and the absolute worst of people. And it's just a time to have somebody come in and with fresh eyes and so and a fresh perspective on, on what's going on. And I thought that Jessica would be a perfect sort of conduit to all of that. Mm. Well, not only are you starring in Pearson, but you're also the executive producer. Yes. And something you've uh, spoken about before is being an Afro-Latina actress in Hollywood. Um, do you see this as an opportunity to bring more voices to the table, uh, bring more diversity to set? Are you even sick of just getting that question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, I was talking to uh, uh, Jesse um, Williams not too long ago, and, and really, you know that you've made it when you have permission to be mediocre. <laughs> and, and so, yes, clearly, <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, but to be able to bring forward a kind of, well, not a kind of world, the world as we see it, as I see it, as I saw it growing up, um, all the voices, women, Afro-Latinos, Latinos, Asians, you know, all, I mean, we all inhabit the world. We all have something to say. We all have a point of view. It, it's all thrust upon us in the same way, in a different way as, as how we sort of digest it and, and, and uh, process everything that's happening. And so, yes, that was absolutely one of the things that was important to me and to the rest of the producers is to play Chicago for Chicago, a metropolitan city for all of its secrets and all of its joys and all of its challenges and all of the people that inhabit it. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, your personal background and your own world and you're the daughter of Cuban immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, is Hollywood doing enough to embrace 
you know, really multicultural backgrounds. It's getting there. It's getting it's, there. It's, you know, they, they, they figured out we're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that our stories are absolutely valid. And they're also, which is, which is really the only thing that ever changes the game when you're talking about business. They're not just valuable. They're not just important, but they're also um, profitable. And they finally figured that out. They got the memo. (laughs) We can make money. We can make as much money. And sometimes, if not more. Yeah, I mean, it still feels like there can be a tendency to treat these things as like, you know, one dimensional. Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt pressured to have to choose between one of your identities when it comes to a role? Um, Usually my identity is chosen for Mm -hmm. me because of how I'm perceived. Mm -hmm. Because of how I'm physically perceived. Most, uh, Most people have, you know, coming up in, in the city and, and certainly coming up in Hollywood, I also, you know, I've often said I didn't have to be black until I became an actress. Just having grown up Latina, that's what I was. That was how I identified. Um, but being brown in the world meant that I was black. And so uh, it was often chosen for me. When we went back to Pearson uh, and revisited her and her identity, it was very important to me that we also revisit her cultural identity mm. and to infuse her with with me, more, a little bit more of me. <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, not only do you have this show coming up, um, but we also have to talk your role about your role in a Black Lady sketch show, oh, um, God, which yes. is coming to HBO in <laughs> August. <laughs> so um, I mean, this looks like it's going to be hilarious. Yeah. What was the best part about working with this cast? It's working with that cast. <laughs> just, it's, just, working with that it's, cast. it's just working with that cast. Robin Thede is yeah. brilliant. I'm so excited that she's had this opportunity to just showcase it even more. She is surrounded by equally as talented women. They're funny. It was just just trying to keep a straight face. And, and to be asked to be a part of that show, I mean, I'm in, in amazing company. Um, yeah, I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled for the world to see it. Is there anybody who made you laugh the most? Oh, God. I, I can't even. <laughs> too hard no, to choose. No, no, I can't. It's too hard to choose. Yeah, yeah. Because I was mostly, I was there, with the, what we shot, it was, uh, it was, Pretty much, I would say, like, 70% of the ladies were there. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like everybody just must be cracking up yeah. like, the entire time. I don't know how yeah. anything gets done. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine. Well, I have to ask you, before we go, mm-hmm. um, you, of course, attended the royal wedding uh, between Meghan and Harry last year. Um, what is your relationship like with Meghan since she has become a royal? Like, do you have to greet her with a royal title now? I don't greet her. <laughs> She's very busy being a royal. <laughs> yes, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for indulging my question, indulging yeah. that one, of course, and very excited to see all of these shows. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to show the world what we've done. Yeah, and speaking of showing the world, make sure you all check out Pearson when it premieres tomorrow on USA. Stay tuned for more and DM. I am so excited to be joined by Chuck Klosterman, author of Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, But What If We Were Wrong, and more. His new book, a collection of short stories called Raised in Captivity, is out now. Hello, Chuck. Hey. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm Actually, good. I'm extremely hungover, but still okay. You are hungover? That's usually my line. I'm well, hungover. I've been in New York now. I got here like Sunday night. I kind of going back. I used to live, I lived here for 15 yes. years, and now I'm sort of back kind New of living the experience, but my body has changed. And hangovers like, in New York are next level things. Well, I guess it's just, I feel like I should be able to. Res- I'm, Respond better to this. <laughs> like I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, it's over. This part of my part of my life might be over. It's, but you still got to drink. Just learn to drink differently now. 
So. <laughs> I only know one way. Anyways, yeah. great well, to be here. Like, great sure. to have you. Let's yeah. jump right into the oh, book. Yeah. So you've written fiction, nonfiction, and now you have this book of short stories mm. that you've called fictional nonfiction. What do you mean by that? Well, I, that's sort of an inside joke to myself. Because <laughs> when you think of it, what is fictional nonfiction? Yeah. Well, that would be fiction. What would be nonfictional fiction? That would also be fiction. Mm-hmm. It's like, it seemed dumb to put stories at the bottom mm-hmm. of the book, which is what they usually do. So I was like, well, I'll just say, you know, it's... I thought it was funny. Yeah. It's just actually consciously confusing to people, yes. but yeah. It's confusing. And some of the stories to me were confusing as I read in a good way. You know, there's stories about everything from a puma and a bathroom uh, on a plane mm-hmm. to white supremacists. Um, what is the unifying theme throughout the book, in your opinion? Well, I mean, it's a collection of short stories, so they're, the theme is not that built in. Like, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I, I suppose a lot of the stories do deal with similar ideas very often. Um, uh, different levels of reality uh, within the reality we all share. Mm-hmm. Um, people overreacting to small things, people underreacting mm-hmm. to cataclysmic things. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, the goal is just sort of be, to be entertaining and interesting. I, it's not as though some of my nonfiction work, you know, you're trying to persuade people mm-hmm. to sort of uh, understand something differently. And, and this is more interpretive and more subjective. Uh, uh, you know, I was just, you can only write what you're compelled to write, yeah. and I was compelled to do this, so, so I did it. So a topic you were compelled to write about is, you know, cancel culture and the performative uh-huh. wokeness culture that mm-hmm. we have around us. What are you trying to get across in those stories? I just think that on, on it's a, you know, I, it's not that I'm saying it's not a serious subject, but you got to have a sense of humor about it, right? Mm-hmm. So there is one story in there that does use the word woke, and I know that because I used it, everyone asked me about yes. it in interviews. We're going to always uh, ask yes. you. It really is. It's the first <laughs> thing people want to talk about because they're like, what do you mean by this? And I just thought, like, well, what if we took something that only happens on the internet mm-hmm. and moved it to the physical world? Mm-hmm. So it's one of these things where you take something that, you know, what is Twitter? What is all of these things? What are social networks? Well, it's like a simulacrum of life, right? Mm-hmm. It's people creating personas, almost second existences, and they're putting them into this world, and they communicate in that world, but also have a separation. So I was like, well, what if I remove that? What if I took that world and just had it be the world? Um, what am I trying to get across in that? I'm trying to get across that the idea of like, boy, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's strange that this is now a problem, that people who are fundamentally the same uh, have a real adversarial relationship with people who simply exist on different tiers mm-hmm. of engagement. Yeah. In other words, that somebody who, I, I see this very often when I look on the internet, it's like people who, I, who in my mind seem like they should be allied like their their fundamental positions about how the world should operate are the same, mm-hmm. but they have different levels of, of well, I mean, some people would say one is more radical, or one would say one is more reactionary, whatever the case may be. Somehow that becomes the more meaningful distinction, and something about their agreement makes them uh, hate each other, mm. you know? Yeah. And I just think that's sort of interesting to watch because I don't really, I'm not too involved with social media. I rarely go on there unless I'm promoting books, but I look at it constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that it has probably opened up sort of an entirely new window for fiction writing mm-hmm. in a way, you know? Because yeah. it's, a, it's, 
in the past, the only possibility you had as a person was to look at the world. Now you have two worlds to look at. Yeah, yeah. and the two world uh, comment you're making makes me think about your past job as the ethicist mm. column, uh, columnist, where you would write every week, or it was weekly. Yep. It was weekly and you would give advice on different ethical mm. dilemmas. Um, you left that column in 2015, I believe, and I'd love to know what it would be like writing that column now under the age of Trump, because he came into office right as you left. Well, I mean, that was a, a kind of a difficult job. I mean, not it difficult. It seems incredibly well, no, difficult. It wasn't so difficult to do, mm-hmm. but it was a difficult experience to have. The stakes seemed incredibly high. It was a different kind of writing for me because, one, uh, you know, say when I was a rock critic, which I was for most of my yeah, career. That's and, been. Yes, and, and you're writing something and, and you want to... You sort of want, uh, you know, in the world of magazines and newspapers, you have a certain amount of space. Say you're writing about the yeah, yeah, yeahs or whatever, and, and uh, it goes a little long. Well, you remove a joke, or it's a little short. Well, you add a little description. But if somebody writes a letter in about, like, how to deal with their grandma with dementia, mm-hmm. I can't be like, well, it's short, so I'm just going to add this joke or whatever. It had to yeah. be perfect. Um, and the stakes were higher in the sense that, like, the risk-reward was off. Mm-hmm. The... The the risk was that if I made a big mistake, like my career would be over. The reward was if I did a good job, people were like, oh, fine, flip. So uh, what would it be like now with, with Trump? I I'm not sure how many ethical questions uh, about Trump get asked. I mean, <laughs> like he, he sort of transcends the idea of ethical dilemmas, I suppose, but... Uh, you, I suppose the real answer, though, is that it should be exactly the same. Like, mm-hmm. ethics are something that are supposed to exist outside of the current moment. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter who's president, you know, uh, they should remain static. Yeah. So I guess the same. Oh, the same. Yeah. There we go. So you live in Portland, Oregon, mm. and you've written a lot about the likelihood of an earthquake hitting yeah. this area of the country uh, within, I think, the next 50 years. Recently, there were more earthquakes in South- Southern California that happened in secession. What are you thinking now? <laughs> well, I'm real glad that with my two children at home and I'm across the country, yeah. you're asking me the easiest question, which is there how would go. I feel about an earthquake yeah. destroying my life? Uh I mean, I'm not stoked about it. I'm not exactly excited that it seems as wit. I mean, like, according to people who, you know, understand the Earth's crust, it is inevitable that an earthquake is going to happen. Because of its proximity to the Pacific Ocean, there would probably be a major tsunami that would accompany it. Uh, But, you know, where are you going to live where there is no risk? Exactly. I mean, you know, you live on the West Coast, you have the risk of earthquake. You live in the Midwest, you have tornadoes and blizzards and flooding. You know, on the East Coast, hurricanes affect here and all all these other things that can happen, you know. Um, So, uh, I I, I mean, am am I kind of gambling that I'm moving? I'm actively moved somewhere where I know this can happen. Am I just going to try to like, well, let's see if I can get my life done (laughs) before the earthquake happens. I do what everybody does. I guess I just don't think about it. Don't think about it and live your life. I thought that way. I just moved from Southern California, so I had the same feeling. I was like, you know what? It's going to happen. Well, it was interesting, too. There was an earthquake in California and an earthquake in Washington, so they were on both sides of, uh, you know, both the north and the south of Oregon. So, like, uh, uh, especially when the Washington one happened, I was sitting with my wife drinking coffee, and we're like, you know, I I knew it had happened because I was following the news that morning, and I told her this, and we were like, hmm, well, uh, what do we do about it? Because you can't hide from earthquakes. There's no, it's not, it's not the kind of disaster you can 
Like, no one even knows what you're supposed to do if it happens. They say, like, stand in a doorway. They're just guessing. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows what to do when the Earth changes its shape. Yeah. <laughs> well, no one knows what to do when the Earth changes its shape is my favorite quote of today. And thank you so much for being here Thanks and talking about your great collection of short stories. Raised in Captivity is on sale now. But up next, Alex and I are sitting down with Oxfam Executive Director Winnie Bionima. Here's a quote from Winnie Bionima. In many countries, workers no longer have a voice. They are not allowed to unionize. They are not allowed to negotiate for salaries. We're talking about jobs, but jobs that bring dignity. Mm. We are so excited to be joined by Winnie Bianima, Executive Director of Oxfam International, former Director of Gender and Development at the United Nations Development Program, and former member of Uganda's Parliament. Thank you for being here, Winnie. Thank yes. you for having me. Thank it's you. So great to have you here today. Well, I want to talk about uh, that quote that I read at the beginning. Um, a video of you at Davos went viral in January, um, and you were talking about inequality. And so what do we need to do to address that idea of dignity? Well, first, it is to recognize that this is unsustainable. To be in a world where 1% own now more than the rest, the 99%, we need to recognize that extreme inequality isn't just stable, it's rising. Last year alone, 26 people, Oxfam counted, had as much wealth as the bottom half of humanity. And the wealth of billionaires was increasing at $2.5 billion a day, while the bottom half, $3.8 billion, were getting poorer by the day. So we got to stop that. We got to check that. And it's all to do with how governments choose to count they don't count the right things. They count what they call growth, but they don't count decent jobs for people. People are trapped in poverty, with poverty wages. I could tell you about people like that. Mm. I often talk about Dolores, whom we work with. She works in a chicken factory in Arkansas, here in this great United States of America. She cuts chickens. Her hands are, are ill. They can't hold her baby because she's been cutting too many chickens. She and her co-workers wear diapers to work because they're not allowed toilet breaks. And they're working in a $50 billion industry with booming profits. Mm. So we got to change the way business is done. Businesses owned by billionaires that are depressing wages, cheating suppliers, dodging paying taxes, and roasting our planet. Mm -hmm. We have to change that. Mm. We have to have businesses that plow back to workers, that plow back to communities, that don't wreck the planet. So my point is always that the billions at the top have to do with a roasting planet and poor people at the bottom. Mm. So we've got to change that. We've got to change how business is done got collect taxes from the rich and put the taxes back into services for ordinary people. Mm. It's not rocket science. Not rocket, <laughs> not rocket science. science. <laughs> well, your comments on taxing the rich went viral at Davos, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I'd love to know how you feel about social justice movements and moments like that going viral. And do you think they're productive for these movements? Absolutely. I mean, a program like, like yours here is part of that movement, part of building the anger of people. People are angry, but people must organize and challenge back. So you see, it was your Supreme Court justice 
Louis Brandeis, who once said, you can have democracy or you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but you can't have both. Mm. So our democracies have been hijacked. Here in your own country, you have a billionaire president serving billionaire interests, giving them tax cuts, and at the bottom, people are angry. And what does he do? He manipulates that anger. Mm. He blames migrants. He becomes racist and attacks uh, racial minorities to divert attention. The real solution is to give justice to ordinary people and to get satisfy their anger by delivering to them good jobs, quality education for their children, health for everyone. Health should not depend on the, mat, on the money in your pocket. Yeah. You should have health whenever you need health care, not pay for it when you can. And, you know, 10,000 people die every day because they can't pay for health care. Mm. That's unacceptable. Mm. So, so we're talking about democracies, claiming back our democracies, and it's programs like yours that give people a voice. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, Trump, and of course the administration just passed a new rule that would end asylum protections for most Central American migrants. And you met Trump at the 2018 G7 summit. So what do you make about uh, this shift in policy? Yes, I met him in Canada, the G7 summit, and it was amazing. All the other seven, six presidents spoke about women's rights and what they are going to do about it. He never said a word. He oh. walked out without saying anything about women's rights. So we're really talking about a, a great country like yours, but where the lives of women don't matter, where workers don't matter, mm -hmm. where billionaires count, and uh, it's about, but you see, billionaires like President Trump and others don't spend their money just on priceless works of art and super yachts. They spend it buying politicians, buying laws, buying the media, silencing citizens, buying impunity from justice. That is the danger mm. of billionaire wealth. That is the danger. And here you have... I think this country symbolizes political capture, mm. real political capture, where now politics and public policy is serving the interests of a few, mm -hmm. and the majority are just angry citizens. Mm -hmm. But this is happening all over the world. Yes, yes. And so many of these angry citizens in the U.S. are becoming elected officials. And four of those people uh, are four congresswomen of color who are being yeah. attacked by the president this week um, on things. And he is being called a racist, and he is being a racist in these comments. What advice do you have to these four congresswomen on how they should handle men like Trump in these situations? You know, they are amazing women. Mm -hmm. They speak a voice of hope. They speak about the rich paying their taxes, their fair share of taxes. They speak about giving good health to people, health care. They speak about education, quality education and jobs, decent jobs. They represent a voice of hope. And it's so ironical that they are being attacked. They are great Americans mm -hmm. in my view. <laughs> I so honor them and respect them. They should just carry on speaking, not be diverted, not get upset about the racism and the hatred. This is the voice of, of 
those who've captured power, who want to divide and distract ordinary people from the real causes, the real issues. So they should just carry on fighting the good cause mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. our kids' education, for our planet. I like the, the, the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. We must make sure that the super rich don't continue to roast our planet and the rest of us face climate mm -hmm. chaos. And you know, they've got bunkers. They're going to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But we have to fight for our planet. It's our only home. Yes. So I want them to just carry on. Yeah, They're see, great Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and you've spoken a lot to us today about the roasting planet. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to give your thoughts on how you think climate change is directly impacting women around the world most directly. It is visible. It is so clear. The evidence is also there that if you take countries like where I come from, I'm from Uganda in East Africa. Here, we're facing droughts, followed by floods, followed by droughts. So farmers can't grow their crops. Homes are washed away. So we're talking not about climate change anymore, but we're talking about a climate emergency. Mm. And women face the higher burden because often, they are the ones who look after families, who feed families. When there's drought, they walk longer and longer distance, fetching water for their homes because they don't have running water like you have here. Mm -hmm. They go farther and farther to look for wood to cook, so their work becomes harder. But also women are often less informed than men because they stay in the home. So they are, they are the last ones to escape an emergency, a flood, a hurricane, and they are often the ones who can't swim. So they will not survive when they are hit by a, a flood. So in, they are more vulnerable many times because of lack of information, because of lack of mobility, but they are also affected because they feed families and look after old people, children, and so on. So the face again of a climate crisis is the face of a poor woman. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is when you see vulnerability. Richer people protect themselves. Mm. Yes. They, they, they can protect their homes, they build stronger homes. If, if you take, for example, the tsunami hit Japan and even hit a nuclear plant, and, and there was a nuclear disaster together with the, the floods, but people died but not to the same extent as, say, when a flood hits Bangladesh mm. and cost of people, poor people, are wiped out. So climate change hurts the poor more and hurts poor women even more. Mm. Mm. Well, we could easily keep on talking to you for many more minutes, but we have to leave it there. Winnie, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, thank for you for here. having me. And you have a great show. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For being a part of it. Yes, and up next, we'll be reading a few more of your tweets. back. It is time to read your tweets, but I have to say, what a delightful time talking to Winnie Banyuma. She was incredible, incredible, and her power is just yeah. radiating off of her. She is really changing the world, and I think for the better, if you want the world to stay around yeah. post-climate change. There you <clears> go. <throat> well, on that note, let's get into these tweets. Princess Slay tweeted this after my sit-down with Gina Torres. Gina Torres is so freaking beautiful, 
Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. She really is stunning. She walked through the control room. I, I was like, her. okay, girl, yes, yeah. bump through. Sini Martinez, you tweeted this after our conversation about Amazon Prime, living my best life resisting Prime Day. Yeah, this is like one of those things where, uh, you know, these workers are protesting and taking a stand and like, you have a choice if yes. you want to buy something from Amazon. Exactly. So, you know, conscious consumption. Is the Indeed. Word. Mm. Well, we wanted to know who else would you include on the list of the most influential people on the internet Michelle says Jesus and Mero, April Rain, and Roxane Gay should be on the list. And yeah, they Agreed. should. Completely. Like, for real, they Completely. should. And yeah. I hear that Jesus and Mero have Megan Rapino on their show this week. I heard that on Twitter. Maybe a rumor. Oh, Fact check well, me, Twitter, but I think it's true. You know true. what? I'll be watching. Yes, I'll be watching <laughs> it too. Well, thank you so much to our guests today. Paul McLeod, Brandy Zadrozny, Chuck Klosterman, Alice Wetterland, Winnie Bianima, and Gina Torres. And we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. I'm going to go find a wife to clean off my computer. Because it's dirty. I stole it and I I have 30, not let it go. 30, have not let it 30, go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs>